So I'm teaching classes, uh, I'm teaching a curriculum that are, that's called the Dharma Essentials. Um, this is a curriculum that my teacher, Lama Maru, put together. And um, Dharma Essentials is meant to be like what you really need to know to be successful on a spiritual path. Um, there is an unlimited amount of Buddhist teachings available out there. And so in these classes, we're trying to get to the the pith of it, like what's the, what's the core of what you need to put into practice in order to be successful. Um, the structure for the evening is I'll give a talk for 45 to 60 minutes, we'll take a little break for tea and relaxation, then we'll come back and do a, a meditation together, and then after that we'll have some time for discussion and question and answer. The topic for tonight and the next four classes is called Buddhist Refuge. There are two handouts, so please take one of each. Oh, um, I, I need one of the first one, please. Thank you. And the second one? You I have that. the second one, thank you. So it's customary at the beginning of a Buddhist class to do what's called taking refuge and um, setting our intention for what we want to get out of the class. Um, there, are the, there are a variety of different types of poems and um, ways, of, uh, ways of setting the intention to go for refuge. And that's really going, talking about refuge and what that really means is the topic of tonight's class. Um, and so we'll have plenty of time to get into it. Um, I personally like to, rather than, what you have in the, first, the single page here is a traditional Tibetan um, prayer. And um, if you were in town last week and came to any of the teachings with Chamchul Rinpoche, you'll recall that we had at the beginning of every class kind of an extended song that was in Tibetan and um, that was the refuge and the bodhicitta wish and so on. Um, so this single page is an example of the refuge prayer. Uh, I want to give you things like this because I want you to see that we're coming from an authentic lineage. The intention here is to preserve the teachings in an authentic way. So this page um, has the original Tibetan script, the transliteration, which is the Tibetan it written in Roman characters so that we can pronounce it, and the translation. Um, so if we were doing a super traditional Tibetan class, we would be chanting the Tibetan language for the refuge prayer. Um, my personal motivation, my personal goal is to make it as pragmatic and accessible and useful as possible. So I prefer at the beginning to go for refuge by thinking about what, the, what refuge really means. Uh, we go for refuge in the three jewels, which is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So as we get started, uh, we take a moment to go for refuge to the Buddha, which to me means considering the possibility that there is a perfected state of consciousness 
that we're not limited to perceiving the world based on our habits and our instinctual animalic reactions to the things that, are de that we're dealing with in our life on a daily basis, but to think that we can evolve not just as biological beings, but really uh, on, as cosmic beings into a perfected state of consciousness. That there are beings like this in the universe, and although we may or may not be able to perceive them, um, likely as uh, beings who are mired in suffering and reactivity, we probably are not able to perceive Buddhas. I, don't, I can't speak for any of you. I, I, I don't know what your perception of reality is, but speaking for myself, um, I don't perceive Buddhas radiating light out of their bodies interacting with me on a daily basis. Someday I hope to, and so we're, but we're taking the, we're taking as a, the idea that these kinds of beings exist, that there are beings who have perfect omniscience, that they understand how reality is really working, and they're able to respond to things from an ultimate state of consciousness, a state of omniscience, and that these beings are suffused, their reality is suffused with compassion and ultimate love. So to me, that's what going for refuge to Buddha means, that, that these kinds of beings exist and that they're out there, they're trying to help us. Um, the second of the three jewels is the Dharma. The Dharma is the teachings, the path that we can follow, that these enlightened beings have left breadcrumbs for us to follow, and that they're coaxing us along so that we can become like them. It's not just that they're out there and we kind of like want to worship them. We have these beautiful effigies in sculptures and illustrations um, that represent these types of beings but that really they want us to be like them and they left a path for us to follow and going for refuge to the Dharma means that if we apply ourselves if we study these things if we meditate contemplate these things that we too can eventually become Buddhas as well and going for refuge to the Sangha uh, the Sangha means community of practitioners and so we're a sangha here, this group of people here ton tonight. You know, we've, instead of watching Netflix or going to the bar, we have decided that what we're trying to do is to participate in the process of the Dharma, of, of cultivating ourselves so that we can eventually be beings who are truly able to help others, that we will eventually become Buddhas and we'll be able to leave those breadcrumbs for others to follow. And the Sangha means that we, that we have other people who are trying to do this with us, that we're not alone on the path, that um, we have other people that we can rely on, people who we can um, work together with and take solace in together, um, that, we're, that we're making efforts, you know? And then the second part of this on this page you see it says refuge and the wish. So the first part is I go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha until I achieve enlightenment. The second part is by the power of the goodness that I do in giving and the rest, may I reach Buddhahood for the sake of every living being. And that's the wish, the recognition that I'm not just trying to get myself out of suffering because what good is being happy if I'm like in a little perfected paradise and then I look out and I see that everybody else is still stuck in suffering and they're living in war zones and there's hunger and poverty and etc. 
that I wouldn't really be in, I wouldn't, that wouldn't really be a perfected state. If I was happy and looking out and seeing that other beings were not happy, that really for me to be, for, for me to be self-satisfied, I need to live in a world where all of the beings are self-satisfied. And so I'm pursuing the Dharma, I'm trying to seek Buddhahood, not just for selfish motivation, but really to be somebody who is truly of service who can truly help others get out of their suffering as well. And so that's the motivation, you know, we're not doing it for, you know, there's all these classic wrong motivations, money, fame, attention, etc. Um, and we're saying that that's not why I'm coming here. I'm not coming here so that I can have some cool Asian philosophy that I can drop at a cocktail party so people will think I'm smart and cool. That's not the motivation. The motivation is that I want to become a better person. I want to fix my screwed up problems so that instead of having to be worried about my neurotic problems, I can say, what are, you know, I'm fine, how are you? What can I do to help you? And so that's what, that's what this poem means. And that's why we're doing this. And now for the next four classes, we're going to really deconstruct that. We're going to go into the Buddhist jargon and... Um, and really explore these concepts and look at what they mean in terms of the, uh, the Geluk Tibetan tradition. So um, now referring to the second handout, the first page is an outline, and that's the structure that we're gonna go through for the class tonight. So these are the bullet points, uh, so you know where we are, and I'm, you don't think I'm just rambling up here, that I'm actually, I have a plan for how, I'm, how we're going to invest this time. And, um, and then the second three or three pages, I think, uh, three or four, are uh, a scriptural source. So this is part of uh, this is part of the way that I help convince you that I'm not just making stuff up. That this is a lineage of teachings. The idea of a lineage is that sometime, once upon a time, there was an enlightened being, and there were a bunch of people on Earth who were able to perceive that enlightened being as an enlightened being and they receive these teachings and then they pass them down um, from mouth to ear, as they say, parampara is the Sanskrit, mouth, from mouth to ear, in a, in a direct unbroken line up to the present day. And so um, we have this uh, scriptural reference, which was uh, the, Gilupas, the, the Gilupa school of Tibetan Buddhism is like, they're like nerds. They're the nerds of the Buddhist world. Like, um, they were super academic, really big on writing things down, really big on clarifying and elucidating and breaking out the details, making sure that there's like no room for misunderstanding. And so um, that you know feeds my own intellectual need to feel like I'm not just practicing some kind of exotic far out thing, but this is actually a system. It's pragmatic, it has application in our lives. Um, so we, my teachers have selected the kind of They've taken excerpts from the, the textual, textual sources and have uh, provided it here for us to refer to. So everything in the outline is uh, elucidated in the text. Um, the genre of text that we're studying is called the perfection of wisdom. Um, the perfection of wisdom is pointing to how reality is really working. We're dealing, with our, we're dealing with our perception of reality, but in case you haven't noticed, other people maybe disagree with your perception of reality. 
And there are different people who perceive reality in different ways. You know, uh, uh, you know an obvious example is that animals and are, are perceiving reality in a fundamentally different way than we are. You know, they don't have hands. They don't have the ability to manipulate objects. They're living in a kind of instinctual way, reacting to their environment. Um, but their perception is valid. You know, they're not just like, it's not just a dumb dog. The dog's reality is, is a valid reality. And so we're trying to get past these kind of perspectives. My perspective, the dog's perspective, you know, thinking my perspective is right is thinking that the dog is stupid and I'm smart, you know? Thinking that racist people are assholes and I'm, you know, too smart for that, you know? But all of these perspectives are equally valid. And the point, though, is to get to the deeper layer of reality in that all of our perspectives are a lens upon. And so the perfection of wisdom genre of texts are trying to help us understand how reality is really working. Get over, my, get over myself, get over my assumption that I'm right all the time, and start, start to realize that I'm not right. I have a point of view. And my habit is to think my point of view is accurate, but if you didn't know before, you know now. Your point of view is not accurate. It's, it's a perspective. And so um, the perfection of wisdom genre has texts anywhere from 800,000 verses, 80,000 verses, 20,000 verses. There's all these different texts. Um, perhaps you've heard of the Heart Sutra, which is one of the most famous Buddhist texts. Um, presumably it's verbatim teaching that um, the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama gave. Um, around, I don't know, 250 BC, 750 BC, there are differences of opinion about when he lived. But um, the Heart Sutra, it's a very romantic sounding name, but the reason it's called the Heart Sutra is because it's the heart of the matter. It's like this is the core stuff that you need to know. If you only have one thing that you're really trying to get, it's in the Heart Sutra, you know? Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. If you are familiar with the Heart Sutra, that's just like, Everything you need to know is in that phrase. But the Galupas love to blow it up and like say, well, you know, there's this and that and this and that and this and that. And so that's what we're doing here is we're going to do the, 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 um, the Galupa lists. So um, that's the genre of text that we're studying. The particular text uh, in, in the reading is called The Three Refuges Found in the Analysis of the Perfection of Wisdom, authored by Kedrup Tempa Dargye who lived from 1493 to 1568. So I have um, fulfilled my contractual obligation to provide for you a historical source and explain where it fits in the lineage of Buddhism. That's to provide you with some credibility and authority that I'm not just some guy off the street who's telling you whatever I think is a good idea. So, moving on with the outline. What does it mean to take refuge? Uh, refuge is kind of a weird word, like we don't really use it in English language that much. Um, what refuge means, most basically, is it means shelter, it means protection. And so, what we're analyzing in this class is what is it that can protect me? What is it that I think can protect me but can't? 
And how do I tell the difference between the two? So the, the definition of going for refuge is the, uh, is the idea that I need help. That, like, if left to my own devices, things maybe are going to work out and maybe aren't going to work out. Like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had the experience where I work hard on making plans. I, I make sure that all of the pieces are in the right order. I, uh, I do the thing that I'm supposed to do in order to get the goal that I want. And then for some reason, it doesn't work out. It falls apart. Like, I don't know why it didn't work out. I was taking refuge in something, but that thing that I was taking refuge in didn't materialize. But it's the idea that and so this leads, you know, this is sort of like the wake up call, you know, when like the thing that you thought was going to work out didn't work out is when we realize like I, if left to my own devices, I'm not going to necessarily get the thing that I'm trying to get. And, but I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to seek help. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get shelter. I'm trying to get protection. And so what are the motivations for trying to get protection? What are the motivations for trying to get help? Uh, according to Buddhist rhetoric, there are two. Going for shelter, going for refuge out of fear, and going for refuge out of faith. Going for refuge out of fear is, the, is just like bad things will happen if I don't have the protection that I need. Like, if I don't have a house, I'm going to be sleeping outside. If I don't have health insurance, I'm going to be bankrupted when I get sick. If I don't have a job, I won't have enough money to buy food and, 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 protect, and um, provide for my family. So the, this is the motivation, is that like, oh, oh no, like if I, don't, if I don't get the things that I need, then I'm gonna be in trouble. Going for refuge out of faith, or here it says belief. Belief is a really interesting notion. In the West, uh, when we have the word faith, it's usually preceded with blind faith. Like that's, uh, that's the kind of Western's materialistic view of, of faith in the religious sense of the word, is um, that I'm going to put my faith in some kind of magical solution. Some kind of uh, supernatural force is going to intervene on my behalf when the, when the chips are down. And if I, in a, if I have a good relationship with the whatever supernatural for, force I have faith in, like it's going to bail me out. You know, this is the kind of treasures in heaven mentality, where it's like if I just play my cards right and like tough it out, like I'm going to get to, you know, on the I'm going on the other side, there's going to be like a cash out where like all my dreams come true. You know, I'm going to get to go to heaven and I'm going to get issued a harp and live on a cloud. And everything's going to be cool at that point. But uh, that's not really the Buddhist view of faith. The, the Buddhist view of faith is intelligent faith. A, a reasoned faith that comes from 
testing our experiences and finding out what works and what doesn't. Um, specifically, especially the Gelukpa, the Geluk view, um, is that we can use our rational intellect to analyze our world and come to a pretty good idea of what's going to work and what's not going to work. We have to expand our understanding of the world. We have to get over our own kind of like, I, I, I know what's right and wrong, and get to like a bigger picture of how reality is working so that we can develop a reasoned, intelligent faith. And so going for refuge out of fear is like what gets you onto the meditation cushion. It's like what gets you in the door, you know what I mean? Like, stuff's not working. Maybe there's something else that's go that is going to work for me, because I because it's not working out, right? I mean, this is about samsara, right? There's a sun this is a Sanskrit word, samsara, and samsara mean samsara is the endless cycle of rebirth driven by suffering. It's characterized by suffering driven by habit, and so when I but through habits of self-cherishing, thinking that I'm more important than everybody else, thinking that I'm, a, a, like, my person is the most important person, and I've got to take care of me. I'm going to take care of me first, and then other people second. That attitude is what is driving us to do things either you know in a gross way like we see with like overt violence and crime and so on but also in subtle ways of like you know i've got a like the person in front of me in line at starbucks is slowing me down and then i have like some kind of animosity towards them like come on hurry up get out of the way because i've got to get to work so that i can make the money so that i can have the protection the refuge so that i'm not going to be so I'm not going to starve or I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. But so, and it's all driven by this idea that like I'm, I'm more important. You know, the, the, the Western psychology idea is called the ego, but that's kind of a modern invention. The, the Buddhist view of it is the persistent self-identification habit. Just the, like, the momentum of thinking I am more important than others because I'm me. I'm me. Like a... I'm in my perspective, and so that like proves that it's the most important perspective. That's what, that's what drives samsara. So regardless of whether or not you want to believe in future rebirths, I mean, it's tough for us in our materialistic society, so I don't like drive that so hard, but according to Buddhist ethics, you have to believe in future births, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. Uh, you have to believe in future lives in order to really have a solid understanding of why ethics matter, why compassion matters, because the culmination of our life leads to a final moment of consciousness. That final moment of consciousness is what drives our consciousness into the future birth. And so if we haven't been really careful about taking care of others and putting other people's needs at least on par, if not higher need, than our own needs, then the culmination of our life is that it we're going to have some kind of selfish, clinging motivation in the last moments of consciousness. The persistent self-identification habit is like, oh no, what about me? And then that's what drives our consciousness into a less than favorable future condition.
And so once we start to, once we wrap our minds about this a little bit, I mean, you don't even have to really look at future rebirths. You just have to look at like, when I'm rude to somebody, that makes my heart hurt. When I'm selfish, it makes my, it makes my heart hurt. And even if I'm just like, yeah, well, whatever, it's just like this thing, it's just a passing moment. Like that has an impact. There's, a, there's an accumulation of our actions and especially our thoughts, right? It's the way that we think of ourselves and then the way that we see ourselves act, the way that we hear ourselves speak to other people, all of that is pointing to our self, our self-image. And, and so if we have this kind of miserly, I gotta take care of me first self-image, then that's going to make us feel sick. That's like stress and anxiety and like me versus them, you know? And that like is yucky. It's just yucky feeling. So like setting aside samsara and infinite future rebirths and infinite past rebirths, just setting all of that aside, just like, I don't want that yucky feeling. And the remedy to that yucky feeling is to, so I don't want the yucky feeling I want an alternative to the yucky feeling. I, and th this is taking refuge out of fear, right? That if I don't change my behavior on some kind of like fundamental level, then like the yucky feelings are gonna continue because I'm just reacting to the self, persistent self-identification habit. But then we can ratchet that up to, from there, that's what gets us in the door. And from there we can practice refuge based on faith. And that's when you start to practice a path like Buddhism. I mean, all of the spiritual traditions are basically teaching the same kind of thing, that like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and don't do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. That's Jesus Christ, you know? That's not Buddhism at all. And the yogic philosophies are all about this too. Yoga starts before you get to asana, which is the physical part of yoga. There's two preemptory stage pre prerequisites, like, when you get to, when you go to a yoga class, before they even let you into the door and teach, start teaching you downward dog, they really should be checking if you've got the prerequisites, which are called the yamas and the niyamas. And the yamas are things that you stop doing. And that basically means stop hurting other people with your, with your actions, with your words, and with your, and, and your attitudes. And then the, the niyamas are things that you start doing, which is like taking care of others. And, and putting effort into taking and making sure that other people's needs are being met too. Maybe even other people's needs are more important than my own. If you start to understand how samsara works and how, how karma and rebirth works, then you understand, well, taking care of other people really is the only way to take care of myself. So all of the spiritual traditions are pointing at this. And this is what refuge out of faith means. Figuring it out that to get rid of the yucky feeling is not just like, oh no, I want to avoid the yucky feeling, but really like, I can get out of the yucky feeling. I can help other people get out of the yucky feeling by changing the way that I am. So that's what, that's what, uh, that's what refuge means. That's, that's okay, that's our definition of refuge. So now there's two types of refuge. And one is something that we're all familiar with. On the, on the handout here, number four, it says ordinary versus exceptional refuge. Um, ordinary refuge is how we currently seek refuge, right? My money is gonna protect me. My health insurance is gonna protect me. 
If I get sick, the doctor is going to protect me. If I, if my house catches on fire, the fire department is going to protect me. Um, if I get into some kind of legal, if I get into some kind of criminal, if I get, if I become the victim of crime, right? The police are there to protect me. This is like, this is our, this is ordinary refuge, right? It's just like, it's like literally the roof over our head is preventing us from getting rained on. The walls are what's making it so that when the air conditioner runs, the room gets a little bit cooler so we're not sitting out in 105 degree weather, we're sitting in 80 degree weather. Like it's quite pragmatic. I don't think I need to hammer the point. Um, but ordinary refuge doesn't always work. Like we have like a major cultural shift right now which is the Black Lives Matter movement. This is a huge segment of our population, of our peers and our friends and our colleagues, for whom the police are not refuge. The police are a source of violence. We have, I don't want to go down that road too far because it's, a, I mean, it's a down, like, you know, women feel threatened by men because sexual violence is like a cultural norm. Like, it's just accepted. Nobody even talks about it. It's like, oh, well, whatever. And so, like, like the, there's no refuge for, for things like that. You know? Your house can and maybe will burn down. If I live out in the foothills where, like, every once in a while, a forest fire destroys a village of people. I mean, destroys all of the homes. You know? I have neighbors whose homes have burned down. And it's a matter of time until my house burns down. And like, is insurance, house insurance, renter's insurance, something like that gonna protect me from that? No, my house is just gonna burn when the fire comes. Like that's not real refuge. That, it's a sense of refuge. Like it's nice that I have a home for now, but like at some point, like when you lose your health, money can't protect you. Health insurance can't protect you. Health insurance may or may not prevent you from being absolutely bankrupted if you end up in the healthcare system the so-called healthcare system. But maybe the insurance company will find a way to not cash that out and you go $80,000 into debt because you got hit by a car and it broke some bones. You know what I mean? Like insurance is the perfect symbol for fake refuge, you know? There's no there's no insurance. There's no insurance that things are not going to go wrong. And when things go wrong, insurance is not going to be a real protection. It's not real refuge. But, you know, I have this sense that if I have a house and if I have enough money and if I have the right kinds of insurance and I have legal counsel and I pay my taxes, that like somebody's going to be there to take care of me. And that's what ordinary refuge is. And you can see how that's a false thing. That if we put all of our hopes, if we put our eggs in that basket, they might not be there for us when we need them. And so that's why, and so that's why we come to a path like Buddhism or yoga or, or an authentic spiritual tradition that's trying to say, you know, reality doesn't work like that. If you didn't know before, you know now, that reality doesn't work according to those kinds of rules. And so that's what brings us to exceptional refuge. In Buddhism, exceptional refuge is defined as the three jewels. Now, the three jewels is this Asian concept of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but it's a metaphor. And what, what we're trying to get to, what I'm trying to get to, is 
what is the metaphor pointing to? How does this apply to us in our life? But as a good Gelugpa Buddhist, I am going to teach what the Buddhists have taught me and pass that along to you. But we're going to deconstruct it and go into it. The three jewels, they're called jewels because they're precious, right? They're like the most precious thing. If you can get a realization, a real felt experiential sense of the three jewels, then you have something more valuable than money. You have something more valuable than gems, right? Like, I don't know, they didn't have like cash back in old Tibet. So they had, they referred to gems as their, like the most valuable thing you could put your hands on, you know? They even have the metaphor of a wish-fulfilling gem, which is apparently something that existed in medieval Tibet. I haven't ever seen one or met anybody who's seen one. But apparently you can get your hands on a gem that also grants wishes. That sounds dope. But they're saying that the three jewels are way more valuable than a gem that can fulfill your wishes. Why? Because they can lead you to real protection. And what is that real protection? It's the idea of enlightenment. Like I started the class with the idea that Enlightenment is a thing. The word enlightenment in Sanskrit is, is uh, Buddha. And Buddha means, the word means a, a lamp, a light that dispels darkness. Once the lamp is lit, the darkness goes away. And so uh, another common way of translating it for, from, uh, in addition to enlightenment is awakening. Like we're all kind of asleep to how reality is really working self-obsessed and not really paying attention to, to reality as it really exists. And so enlightenment is waking up to the essential qualities of reality and how causality is really working. And so the three jewels are these approaches, these metaphors, these tropes for how we can achieve that state ourselves. It's totally not useful. It's totally not useful to worship a Buddha figure or a Buddha image. Um, the, the Buddha can't help you, the Buddha can't help you by intervening in your life. This is another, another simple kind of Buddhist logic. If enlightened beings had the capacity to re relieve our suffering for us, they would have done it by now. So this is, this is a characteristic of how reality is working, which is, ultimate subjectivity, that our perspective of reality is what creates our reality for us. The reality exists the way it exists for us because it exists for us the way it exists for us. And so Buddhas in their breadcrumbs are trying to point out that they're trying to point to us that reality doesn't exist the way that we think it exists. We think, that we think it exists the way we think it exists because we're stuck in the habit of thinking that it exists the way we think it exists. I know it sounds like Eastern cyclic logic, but it's actually, it's actually metaphysical truth. But that's something you have to figure out for yourself. I try to make a point of saying this in every class. is equally useless as it is to worship a Buddha figure. It's also equally worthless to take my word for it. Buddhism is a scientific method. Buddhism... Buddhism is a contradiction in terms. Buddhism does not work if you treat it as an ism. It only works if you treat it as a scientific method. Your mind is the laboratory. You have to put these things into practice in your own life and test them. You have to test them. 
and by testing them you will generate results and then you will have successful experiments and failed experiments and in your failed experiments you will devise new experiments but if you just kind of take it for granted if you just believe that buddhism is if you just believe that buddhism works it doesn't really do anything the belief is only useful to get you to do the practice and once you're doing the practice that's when you start to produce the results and if you're not producing the results then you need to fine tune your methodology and figure out how to produce the results. That's, my, that's one of my caveats that I try to say in every class. Don't believe me, test it. You must test it. So, moving on. Um, the taking refuge in the three jewels. This is exceptional, this is exceptional refuge. Um, qualities of the Buddha jewel. I've been, I've been kind of touching on this in a variety of different ways throughout the class. Um, and again, I strongly encourage you to take the handout home with you and read it. This is one of the ways that you can, um, uh, that you can do these experiments in your own laboratory is to read texts on the Dharma, contemplate, read them, contemplate them, meditate on them. Um, so that's why I'm providing this handout for you because I'm trying to give you a tool that you can take with you and apply every day in the in the meantime between when you get together with your uh, sangha, whether that's this sangha or you have another community, whether you have a regular yoga class, it's all good. Qualities of the Buddha jewel. A Buddha is a being that understands perfectly how causality is working. They understand that perspective, awareness, consciousness is a fundamental component of reality and that the relationship between the perspective and the sense data is what's creating a particular reality for a particular being. So, this is what, uh, in Buddhism this is called the three spheres. The three spheres are the subject, which is the perceiver, the, uh, the object, which is the perceived, and the relationship between the two. Now, we believe that all three of these are self-existent, meaning that they have their own intrinsic qualities, regardless of whether or not I'm perceiving them that way, that's how they really are. And we're just kind of like wandering through this planet, kind of like running into stuff. Um, but that's not actually how reality is working. This is what they call karma and emptiness. Emptiness is that the things that we perceive are empty of the, of the qualities that we perceive in them. The qualities that we perceive in the objects that we perceive are a quality of our perception, not a quality of the object, a quality of the perception of the object. And so in fact, the subject, the subject me and my sense of me, the object, the things that I'm perceiving and interacting with, and the relationship between the two come into conjunction together. Time is functioning this way. There's not, and so Buddhas are beings that get this, right? There's not a past, a present, and a future. This is why they sometimes say that Buddhas um, can perceive the three times. This is why they have three eyes, right? The three eyes represent, they can view the past, they can view the present, they can view the future. That's a metaphor. What it really means, what it's really pointing at is another metaphor, metaphors on top of metaphors, is that they understand that time is itself a perception. 
Which is why sometimes time flies, and sometimes time goes really slowly. If time were existing in, if time were self-existent, we wouldn't be able to perceive it going at different rates of speed in different conditions, right? That's just one little example. That's one of those little like, wait a minute kind of things. It's like, you, it couldn't, it couldn't be, time couldn't be like a systematic one second is one second if sometimes time flies and sometimes time moves slowly. So Buddha is a being that exists with a complete understanding of how causality is working. That the way that we see the world is what creates the world that we see. And then this is why we have karma, uh, which we'll get into in a second. Um, definition of the Dharma jewel. Uh, the Dharma is, as I, as I mentioned in the beginning, Dharma is the path, the teachings, the breadcrumbs that the Buddhists have left and that the lineage has done their best to preserve through the generations in order for us to continue to try to put these things into practice. The Dharma specifically is any information, any teachings, any ideas, any, anything that comes into your life that's teaching you how to truly be happy. And true happiness is living in a world where all beings are free of suffering and where all beings have their needs met. And all beings are not screwed up by ignorance and the, and the persistent self-identification habit. So Dharma is not strictly limited to the Buddhist Dharma. I'm not trying to give you a religious doctrine. I'm using the system of Buddhism but we're trying to get to what are the fundamental truths of how reality is working, how, how causality is working. And so Dharma is anything that's coaxing you along that path. So there's tons of books about this stuff and some of them are written in Tibetan and some of them are written in English. I'm personally having a lot of value studying neuroscience and psychology, which are totally not Buddhism, but they're really helping me understand how my mind is recreating the problems that my mind is recreating, you know? And so for me, that's dharma, because I can put it into the context of I'm trying to become a better person. I'm trying to resolve my neurotic problems so that I can stop overlaying that stuff onto other people and I can instead just like, just be kind and just try to help people who are having a worse off day than me, you know? And if I'm having a bad day, I want to have the tools to be able to realize that <coughs> Making my bad day other people's bad day only makes things worse. And if I'm having a bad day, but I can still be nice to people, even if I feel like garbage on the inside, like I'm overall increasing the happiness quotient of the planet, you know? So anything that's helping you do that is, is Dharma teachings. The Sangha Jewel is, as I mentioned in the beginning, is a... Uh, are, are the other people who are trying to do these kinds of things. Like we need, you know, we need help along the path. It's pretty hard to, to work really hard on this stuff and kind of feel like you're alone in the world. Like I'm the only one who's trying to make myself a better person and like everybody's just in my face all the damn time. And so having a Sangha, having an opportunity to get together with other people who care about this kind of stuff and meditate together and discuss together and, and have an opportunity to share like we're gonna do with the latter part of this session is really important. Um, 
I personally, I, I'm a geek, and so I really like all of this nerdy stuff, and, and I really like talking about it. And so for me, I like get stoked about having the opportunity to come up here and share all of this stuff with you. But really, it's, it's just as important, if not more important, for us to meditate together and to like set the intention that I'm going to try to meditate. Maybe I don't meditate every day. You, you really ought to. I mean, it's like part of the scientific methodology is you've got to practice this introspection. You've got to practice this introversion. You've got to learn how to slow your mind down so you can see how it's working. You've got to learn how to identify the things that trigger anxiety attacks so that you can gradually learn how to prevent those anxiety attacks. You know, we all have some kind of trauma that gets re-triggered, you know? And learning how to figure out how that's working in our mind, how the trauma gets re-triggered, and then I start perceiving things that are, that are benign as threatening, and then I react to them as if they're threatening. Learning how to identify that, how that process is working in our mind, just on a pure psychology level, like Buddhist you know, metaphysics and all that stuff aside, just learning how I get triggered and blow up in other, at other people. Or, or recognizing that when other people are blowing up at me, that they're being triggered. They have some kind of neural pathway that's being re-triggered by some kind of childhood trauma or something like that. And just be like, I can't like blame this person for being an asshole. I have to recognize like they're suffering. They're coming from a place of pain, which is why this is happening. And that gives me the courage to be patient in the face of that, you know? Even if it's just like, I'm just not gonna shout back. I'm just gonna like let it happen. And eventually they're gonna run out of steam and I'm gonna forgive them and we're still gonna be friends later. I'm gonna not escalate the situation, you know? Uh, so that's why to meditate. And so meditating together gives us uh, opportunity to kind of bolster our sense, like I can do this, you know? 10 minutes a day, it's like, that's a damn good start, you know? If I'm meditating 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, like, that's an excellent accomplishment. So, nominal versus ultimate forms of the three jewels. The nominal form is like, when I'm trying to ratchet up my motivation, I'm trying to get my butt in gear, and just saying, it's like this poem, you know? This is the nominal, this is the nominal three jewels. Oh, for the love of God, I go for refuge to the Buddha and the Dharma and Sangha until I achieve enlightenment by the power of the goodness that I do in giving and the rest. May I reach Buddhahood for the sake of every living being. That's the nominal refuge. And like, at first we have to like burn it in, you know, memorize, recite, you know. But again, with the understanding that, you know, just saying I want shelter does not actually provide shelter. You know, the... The analogy is like, I'm out in a rainstorm and I'm getting pelted with rain. The nominal refuge is saying, I wish I was dry right now, but that's not actually gonna provide the refuge, is it? In, case, in the case of Buddhist refuge, it's a place to start, you know? It's getting ourselves, it's getting our motivation up. It's getting us, it's getting us, to, the, it's getting us to the cushion every day, getting us to the meditation cushion every day. The ultimate forms of refuge is when you gradually get an experiential sense that there's something that will protect me, that the, there's some kind of thing. I mean, let's be frank, like the Buddha jewel, like I don't really know what that means, like I've never met a guy with a thousand arms and an eyeball in each one of his hands and he's got like freaking stacks of heads and like 
he's on fire because there's like blazing light coming out of his pores. Like, I have never met that guy. And uh, sounds awesome, but I mean, kind of, I, I hope that you guys have met that guy, but I'm just gonna be frank with you that I have not met that guy. Um, but, uh, and so going for refuge to the Buddha jewel is like saying, I freaking hope that Buddhas exist and that that's possible. And that's the nominal, that's the nominal refuge. And then the ultimate refuge is that gradually you get a sense that reality's not working the way that it seems to be, that perspectivism is a fundamental component of what's creating reality. Therefore, to change the perspective is to change the reality. Therefore, if I could change my world into a world that could have Buddhas in it, then I'm that much closer to meeting a real bona fide light shining out of their pores kind of Buddha. Because that's the only way that we're going to get a Buddha, is to change our perspective of the world that enlightened beings exist in it. And again, it's a good reason to meditate, because you're gradually repatterning your brain, you're gradually changing your neural pathways, you're gradually getting yourself into the point of view where you, you're gradually shifting your perspective, you know? And according to the Buddhist thing where you've got um, infinite past and future births, um, we're not talking about a timeline of 70, 80, 100, 120 years. We're talking about a, lot, a, a timeline where we talk about eons, you know? So just cross your fingers, you're on the right track, you're in this, you, you wouldn't be in this room tonight if you didn't already have like rocket fuel momentum moving you forward on your spiritual trajectory. You couldn't even, you wouldn't even know this freaking place existed if you were not already well on your way to getting yourself uh, off of the hamster wheel of, of samsara. So that's a good reason to have faith, right? You wouldn't be, you wouldn't, these, you wouldn't hear these words. You couldn't hear these words if you didn't already have extraordinarily good karma, if you didn't already have a, like a bunch of lifetimes at your back of, of serious spiritual practice, of burning off bad karma and generating good karma. Okay, I'm gonna kind of blaze through this last section here. Um, this is the refuge among the three types of practitioners. So the, the um, last series of classes I did was on the three principal paths, and the three principal paths are about the three stages of, um, of, of Buddhist, um, the three stages of Buddhist motivation and the kind of practice that you're doing. So um, this is called a variety of different things. The, on, the, on the handout here it says the, the, refu the steps, it says the taking of refuge, but um, the, broader, the broader, perspective is, broader perspective is the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope, the steps shared with practitioners of medium scope, the steps shared with practitioners of greater scope. Now they're called the steps shared because we want to think I'm a practitioner of the greater scope, but actually the greater scope is inclusive of the medium and lesser scope. So you can't just like fast forward. It's like reading the last chapter of the book and then saying that you read the whole book. Like you can't just you can't just fast forward to the end. You've got to master the you've got to master the the baby steps and then the middle steps and then the bigger steps. Um, this is also called called if you're into Buddhist jargon. This is called the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana the three vehicles of Buddhism. The Hinayana is the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope. Mahayana is steps shared with practitioners of medium scope. Vajrayana is the steps shared with practitioners of greater scope. 
Um, and then the broad categories of the practices for each of these, the, the lesser scope is called renunciation, which is the steps for developing your motivation and why you want to practice spiritually and starting to take your spiritual life seriously, recognizing that it's important. Um, and so that's what steps, the, the refuge of practitioners of lesser scope, the motivation is to avoid negative consequences in the future. I'm going for refuge out of fear so that I'm so that I'm not going to in the Buddhist jargon it's avoiding the lower rebirths like humans are like is pretty damn good in terms of the different types of lives that you can have the lesser births are more Buddhist jargon are the animals and then the step down are the hungry ghosts and then the step down from that are the hell beings and then there are higher births that have their own problems which are the demigods and the gods and that's all Buddhist jargon if you see this we don't have one in here I don't think but uh, there's this wheel that shows all of the different rebirths and, and the various sufferings and advantages and disadvantages of all the different rebirths. Um, that's all like technical Buddhist stuff and I'm sure eventually we'll get into that in all kinds of gruesome detail. Um, but the gist of it is that I'm trying to prevent negative effects for myself in the future. Like I'm going for refuge so that like I'm just trying to like stop the bad stuff from happening, you know? And so then um, this is renunciation, realizing that samsara is going to keep happening unless I change. Um, the steps shared with practitioners of medium scope is um, trying to get out of the cycle of suffering altogether. This is the goal of nirvana. And nirvana, the technical definition of nirvana is uh, the cessation of mental afflictions, right? Nirvana is like no more problems. I've produced a state of consciousness where I am unruffled, you know, it's like instead of people pushing my buttons, I have no buttons to push. Do your worst, I'm cool. And so this is, um, I, you know, I want off the gerbil wheel. The lesser scope is like, I'm, I'm still on the gerbil wheel, but I want like a better deal <laughs> than what I currently have. And the practitioners of middle scope are like, you know, to hell with the gerbil wheel, I just want to be on an even keel from now on. And so. The, um, that's the, the Mahayana and, the, um, and starting to develop the, uh, starting to, to really put into practice not hurting others and trying to help others, but, with the self, but still with a fairly selfish motivation. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to Nirvana, ciao. Um, the steps shared with practitioners of greater scope, the motivation is that everyone's coming with me. I'm not leaving anybody in suffering. Because of perspectivism, I see, the fact that I see other beings in suffering means that, if, that I need to change my perspective in order to get those beings out of suffering. Or another way of putting it is that if I want complete, total, perfect Buddhahood, I need to make sure that the, when I look out on the world, I see a world of other beings that are happy, free, of, free from suffering, and have all of their needs met. And so the, the point is that there are different types of motivations. One is just sort of like, hit the brakes. And then one is sort of like, I'm out of here, ciao. And then one of them is like, okay, guys, we're leaving. We're getting out of here. We're all going together, you know? And that's the Vajrayana, you know, the Vajrayana is like, is like hitting the gas. Like I'm, I'm putting nitrous oxide in my gas tank and we're gonna like turbocharge out of samsara. Everybody get in, we're going.
We're going to Buddhahood. We're going to the paradise. So um, the last thing on here is um, causal refuge versus result refuge. Um, this is, again, kind of a technical jargony Buddhist thing. Causal refuge is everything I've just described. It's, it, it includes um, anything that is, the, okay, the core of causal refuge is where I am working on the three jewels as if they are things outside of me that can help me. There's a Buddha jewel that I can go for refuge to. There's a Dharma jewel, you know, the textbooks and the practices and all of the different lists that I'm going to memorize so that I know all of the different ins and outs of Buddhist philosophy and blah, blah, blah. And the Sangha jewel, the people, you know, the people that we practice with, the people who in our lives are supporting us and helping us. Result refuge, we ratchet it up one more step. Because of infinite time, past and future, because of the inevitability of cosmic evolution, because of the unlimited potential of the, that is the universe, my enlightenment is inevitable. Whether it's gonna be in this lifetime or it's gonna be in three eons, we're gonna, you know, that's another, that's a conversation for another day, but it's inevitable. And Buddhas exist outside of time. They're not limited to our perspective of like chugging along through 2016 and then we're gonna to get to 2017 if we're lucky and we're gonna keep going. Buddhas see all of that as one nexus coexisting in a constant unfolding nowness. Which means, hold on now, the Buddha that you will become already exists. <laughs> and the only reason we don't know that, the only reason we're not that Buddha is because of the persistent self-identification habit. And all of the bullshit that the persistent self-identification habit has us doing to get our own little meager needs met. So result refuge, here's the cash out for the whole thing. The result refuge is that the Buddha that you will become is helping you along the way, every step of the way. And that's what we're going for refuge in. That's the true that's the true refuge. That's the true shelter. That someday I'm going to click over and I'm going to understand perfectly how causality is working. I'm going to understand perfectly the three spheres, how the subject-object interrelationship is coming into existence on constant ongoing nowness. And at that point, all of this is going to be the perfect thing to get me there. This is what Bob Thurman calls the consolation prize. <laughs> that all of the bullshit that you have to deal with, the traffic jams and the being broke and when people are in your face, all of those are exactly the right thing to hasten your perfect evolution to the Buddha that you'll ultimately become. And that, that concept, realizing that concept, remembering that concept, bringing it up in your mind as much as possible, that will give you the courage to keep going. And it also means there really are no mistakes. 
everything is already, it's already unfolding perfectly. 